Well, there are a few subjects that are really intriguing to Christians, especially as you grow in Christ. And I think the more that you um, study the Word of God, the more that you live the Christian life, the more that you attend churches, and especially different kind of churches, it's inevitable that you're going to encounter this issue regarding spiritual gifts. And when we think about spiritual gifts, there are two major positions on spiritual gifts, known as continuationism and cessationism. And today, we want to talk about that very thing, and I'm so excited to get into this discussion and to tackle this subject. I've got a couple friends in uh, in channel here with me today to help uh, do exactly that. I want to introduce our guests. Uh, Kevin Moore is back with us to join us for another episode of Christ and Kingdom. And today we have a new guest, but an old friend, longtime friend, Mike Tiemann. Mike Tiemann is a pastor in Anaheim Hills, California, at the Rock Community Church. And Mike is here for the first time, and so we want to welcome Mike. Mike, how are you doing, brother? It's great to be with you. I'm doing great, Emilio. It's such a privilege and an honor to be with you, and I'm just I'm, I'm so blessed to talk about this controversial yet important topic. Yeah, no, absolutely, for sure. And what's amazing is that all of us have a background, which is kind of cool, right? It's kind of interesting, but we all have a background in Calvary Chapel, which is really interesting because we all kind of come from the same kind of uh, uh, history in our in our Christian walk, and we were all exposed, in a sense, to continuationist theology. And I think for probably a lot of a, a lot of our early years as believers, you know, we just sort of defaulted to the continuationist position. And then, you know, obviously through the course of time, you tend to grow theologically. Uh, some people don't change that position. It doesn't matter if they become reformed or whatever, but they don't really change that position. Some of us do, and apparently all three of us have. So uh, <laughs> that, that puts us a lot, we have a lot, of, a lot in common here today. <laughs> That is so true. We're all cessationists. We're all five point Calvinists now. You know, it's uh, yeah. definitely thinking about the early years and just where we were twenty years ago, and just uh, how our theology's you say has grown tremendously. You know, mm-hmm. but even in the midst of it, um, you know, thankful for for Calvary Chapel simply because they always say Act seventeen, be like a Berean. And what's the joke that Calvary Chapel produces more Calvinists than anybody else because they because they tell you to study your Bible all the time. So. Um, so, but yeah, look back on those years and just look at just, obviously the three of us were in the same spot, but just growing tremendously and, and just continuing to learn. And Emilio, I think you hit the nail right on the head when you said we, we naturally just kind of defaulted to that position, I think in all, in, you know, years yeah. ago for sure. Yeah, I, I know for me, um, there, there came a time where I began really studying it. I remember reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. And Wayne Grudem has about 70 pages in his systematic theology. It's all dedicated to a defense of the spiritual gifts. And so he's definitely coming from a robust continuationist position. And, uh, but I, you know, looking back, I remember I never really read anything that was explicitly cessationist. And I think for a while it was almost like, well, you have John MacArthur in Southern California and LA, and MacArthur is like the cessationist guy. And we were always told, right, that he was wrong on that issue and move on kind of thing. You know, he's a great expositor, but he just doesn't understand the spiritual gifts or whatever, right? Uh, But I know for me, it was really the study of biblical theology that led me toward a more cessationist position 
for a while, I was sympathetic to D.A. Carson's position. And D.A. Carson's position is what's known as open but cautious. I'm sure you guys have heard those terms, right? But open but cautious. And so uh, D.A. Carson not willing to adopt a full cessationist position, let's say, but he certainly has seen enough danger or abuses that he is wise enough to say, yeah, perhaps the spiritual gifts are still ongoing, but we need to be really cautious how we engage these things so that we don't slip into some of the ludicrous stuff and some of the r- real dangerous abuses that you see with spiritual gifts and, and and with a lot of the denominations that engage openly in charismatic activity. It just seems like he was onto something, because when you do look at the charismatic world, there are a lot of denominations out there that really engage the spiritual gifts in a really reckless way. And um, I know growing up in Southern California, another denomination nearby Calvary Chapel was the Vineyard. And, <laughs> you know, the Anaheim Vineyard, very, very famous, and the history there with Wimber and everything. And I remember... Uh, watching old videos of Wimber where they would have their worship services, and then he would command the whole church to begin singing in tongues, <laughs> you know, and, and there you go. And so the entire church would be simultaneously speaking in tongues when it doesn't take a genius to look at what the Bible says to know that that goes completely contrary to what Scripture tells you to do with, let's say, that something like the gift of tongues, and so uh, these abuses are prevalent in the charismatic world, those kinds of things. And so uh, maybe just a little bit before we get into these talking points, maybe just a little bit more background. Mike, what about you? What, 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 what are some of the concerns that led you, let's say, to a deeper, understa- or deeper investigation or study of cessationism? Yeah, I was in the open but cautious camp for... Uh, most of my faith, I would say, and cautious because I saw the radical abuse. I saw the potential danger. I saw um, men of, quote, men of God exercising authority that I didn't see the Bible giving any permission to, and just that rampant potential for abuse um, terrified me. And I didn't see it consistent. So that's where I was at this, this place of tension for most of my uh, you know, Christian life of like, okay, I'm, I'm continuationist in my theology, but I'm seeing all of this danger, right? Danger signs. And then I would get you know, people telling me, well, you're, you just lack faith or, or you just need to trust or you just need to, you know, and it was always more of a personal attack towards me. Instead of a, here's what the Bible says. Um, and that was my, my kind of process as I would watch things and I would go, hold on, I don't see this as biblical. Uh, and my, my Bible radar, if you will, would go up and, and I was always just hesitant. But then I was never at the place where I, I did a deep dive study. I can't say I was never at the place because I am now, but uh, it took me a long time to do that deep dive honest study that wasn't from an emotional uh, foundation or an experiential foundation, but just allowing the Bible to speak for itself and being able to throw off all of that uh, baggage. Mm. Yeah, amen. 
Yeah, Kevin, I think you probably would resonate with a lot of those points, right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think the big thing for me was just uh, was believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. Was Second Timothy three sixteen seventeen was that true? Was Second Peter one three that God's given us all the things that pertain to life and godliness? Was that true? And I think a lot of times you start to see the abuses of it. I mean, I think we all know that, um, and we've all experienced, and I'm sure your listeners too. Is, is is somebody stands up there and they say the words "God spoke to me" or "God told me." Um, <clears throat> You know, I mean, I can think of a message once that that was preached and I was at second service and got up during first service and he said, God spoke to me and told me to preach this message. Well, someone was new to the church and then they came up after and said I was blessed by that message. So then that's kind of out of fuel to the fire for second service of you know, God spoke to me on Sunday morning, told me to preach this message. And this was confirmed because some lady who, you know, who the first time she had heard the message came up to me and told me how this blessed her. So this was definitely the Lord. And it's like, no, the reality of the situation is you just, and I mean, this is the first thing that popped in my mind too, is you just didn't study. Where was the Holy Spirit Monday through Saturday? Was he gone? And then all of a sudden he decided to show up on Sunday morning. And there is, as Mike was saying too, I, I especially you see the abuses of it. It's like a modern day Gnosticism in the sense of like there's a higher spiritual knowledge and um, and pastors use use that and they they abuse it and it's that spiritual caste system. But the reality of the situation for me was, do I believe in the sufficiency of scripture? Do mm-hmm. I believe that the canon is closed? Do I believe Ephesians 2.20 that the foundation of the church has been laid and and now we have everything that we need in the word of God um, that pertains to life and godliness. Yeah. Well, Kevin, since you're on that, on those points, uh, why don't you just kind of give us sort of an overview of what are the two different sides really saying when, when someone says they're continuationist, what are they, what are they adhering to? And conversely, when somebody says they're cessationist, what do they mean that they are cessationist? I know for probably the vast majority of people who are going to listen to this, they already have these categories down. But there's also a big number out there that is not really quite clear. I don't know about you guys, but I'm still I'm still meeting people that are like sensationalism. (laughs) What is sensationalism? (laughs) You know, so there's still folks out there that don't know what cessationism is, right? And they don't even know what the word continuationism means. They know what the theology or, or or some of the practice. They know what in practice they're talking about, but let's just kind of define terms there, uh, Kevin, if you would, and kind of tell us a little bit about both positions. Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, if I could sum it up very succinctly, it would be someone who is a continuationist, believes that the miraculous and the revelatory gifts, or we could say the performing of miracles, tongues, healing, and prophecy, that those gifts continue today, where a cessationist would say that those gifts passed away when the foundation of the church was laid, and those gifts have not extended beyond the time of the apostles. And um, obviously tonight we're talking about, and uh, you know, this podcast too, we're talking about the biblical evidence for the cessationist position. And I know you even alluded it, uh, to it earlier, and, and Mike and I were, were talking about that as well. But I think one of the most prominent in the church today, and I know, Amelia, you mentioned Grudem as well, is the idea of prophecy or, or God continuing to give new revelation. And... Um, 
you know, I'm sure, again, as I said, many of your listeners, Emilio, we've all, the three of us have heard as well as, as pastors, other people say, God spoke to me or, or God told me. And then the next words out of their mouth were not from the very word of God. And so, um, yeah, that's how I'd sum it up as far as a continuationist and cessationist position. Um, but um, just want to throw that right back to you, Emilio. And uh, could you give us some some arguments that somebody who is a continuationist would, would use to justify um, their case that the gifts are still for today? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, the, the, the strength, I think the strength of continuationism is, is certainly sort of like... Um, uh, kind of at face value, the reading of the Bible. You just read the Bible. You go through the you go through the uh, the the Gospels. You get to the Book of Acts. You see that God is doing miraculous things. The Spirit descends on the church. All of a sudden, the apostles are doing signs and wonders. You're seeing episodes where disciples are being baptized, and then they're being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues. And you know, some you know uh, assemblies of God and other other type of denominations they would argue that in fact. Um, that speaking in tongues is the evidence that you have received the Holy Spirit, that you have been baptized by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, they would put a huge emphasis on the gift of tongues as an authenticating sign of your salvation. And it's really interesting how that becomes <laughs> an external sign for an internal, uh, the internal evidence of salvation. But, you know, when, when you just read your Bible at face value— it seems like there's nothing in the Bible that explicitly says, hey, the gifts have ceased. And so people can walk away just with a childlike faith, believing more that the Bible, and in particular, right, we would say something like the book of Acts, is is just as prescriptive as it is descriptive. And so obviously, um, we need to, to have a proper hermeneutical approach to the Bible to be careful not to conclude that everything in the Bible is prescriptive just because it is descriptive. Uh, but, you know, I, I would say that's one of the big arguments for continuationism is that the, the, the apparent uh, face value, reading of the scripture, just a simple cursory obs- observation of the text doesn't seem to lend to the idea that these gifts have ceased and then you begin to get into some of the relevant passages. And so continuationists would say, well, even if you say something like the book of Acts is, is mainly, uh, let's say there are passages that are descriptive and not prescriptive, when you get into the epistles, which are supposed to be the normative doctrine, that which produces the normy norm of Christianity, when you look at that, what you conclude is that, look, it's even taught in the epistles of Paul, so therefore it must be continuing today, because in 1 Corinthians, we have an extended section, a couple chapters, where the apostle goes in-depth into spiritual gifts. Uh, you see evidence of the spiritual gifts in Galatians, for example, Galatians chapter 3. You see uh, more again in Ephesians, uh, references at least. Uh, to uh, be filled with the Spirit. You see in Thessalonians, you're being told not to quench the Spirit or to despise prophecy. And so these are the scriptures that a a continuationist is going to go to, to say, look, when you just have a very basic reading of scripture, you have to do a lot of reading into the Bible to come away with something like cessationism. And so that, that at least is 
part of it. You know, you even have in 1 Corinthians 14, and this is probably their biggest proof text, is 1 Corinthians 14, 39 tells us explicitly to desire earnestly the gifts, uh, uh, the gift of prophecy, for example, and not to forbid the speaking of tongues. And so obviously a continuationist would say, if you truly want to be biblical, if you want to be apostolic, why are you not seeking prophecy, and why are you not speaking in tongues? Or why are you forbidding the speaking of tongues? And so something like that, I, these are the kind of relevant passages that a continuationist is going to, uh, going to argue for. And, and then, of course, I would say negatively, a continuationist, because I remember early on, I read everything Wayne Grudem had to say about the gifts. I read, I did tons of stuff from John Piper, let's say, which was really just rehearsing Wayne Grudem at, at, at a certain point. And then I read Lloyd-Jones and others on the spiritual gifts. And, you know, it, 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 exactly that. What they would say is that the cessationist arguments, they just don't bear out in Scripture. And so passages like Hebrews chapter 2 and, uh, you know, the hermeneutics of the book of Acts, they're not buying those arguments. They're not adhering to those arguments. So something like that is going to be the, the argument for continuationism. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. Mike, how would you, uh, I mean, Emilio mentioned some of those things, but um, how would you refute that? Like if somebody comes to you and just basically says exactly what Emilio said, hey, I'm appealing to these passages. And um, what would you say to that? What would you tell someone who goes, hey, it, look what it says. Don't despise prophecy. Look what it says. It says here, this is has to be prescriptive. It, just because it, it says it, we, if we take a literal approach, what they'll say to scripture, then obviously this is for the church today. So so yeah, share with us how how you would respond to those, um, to those uh, you know, you would say, uh, justifying their case of why it uh, continues today? Yeah, great question. Very important question. And here's where I, I wrestled with it. Because I would watch people, and they would come, and, and they would do a meeting. They would do a study. They would do whatever they want to call it. But then they slapped the word prophetic on, on top of it, the label. And they would do whatever shenanigans they would... Uh, uh, they would do at the meeting and they would label it prophecy or prophetic. And then I would come along and go, wait, hold on. That, that seemed like nonsense to me. And then the response was, well, you're despising prophecy. Hmm. Well, hold on. No, I'm, I'm despising what you're doing. And the burden of proof is upon you to show that that is what Paul was talking about. Mm-hmm. And, and that's where I found the arguments to fall short because they would come in and, and they would throw out that, yeah, don't despise prophecy, but well, that's not what I think I'm doing. And then they'd have to come and then they have to define, and this is a key point, they have to redefine the biblical definition or idea of what prophecy is. And it's kind of timely. I'm actually teaching an Old Testament history class at a, at a local high school uh, co-op, and we're, we're going through the prophets right now. And my whole class last week was, is there a continuity of the idea of prophecy or prophet in the Bible, or is there a discontinuity? Do we come up with a second definition of the idea of prophecy or prophet once we get New Testament or post-Christ than we do 
say, in Isaiah, right? And uh, so they're going to come in and they're going to redefine prophecy at this kind of level that seems superficial, seems questionable, right? Prophecy now in New Testament context could be mixed with error, right? That's what, what Grudem and, and others uh, will, will talk about. And they put this category of prophecy that I don't see a consistent biblical idea for or biblical defense for. And Emilio kind of said in passing in his opening that, that his study of biblical theology uh, really uh, moved him towards this position and moved him away. And I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about you know that, that idea because I think that's been crucial for me is stepping back and looking at that grand narrative of the Bible from a biblical theological standpoint. And I think that provides a whole lot of safety, a whole lot of answers. It answers yeah. the, is Pentecost normative? Right is what Paul is saying in in the Corinthians church is that specifically for that time in the early church where literally the prophets and the apostles could be identified um, and and so forth and so so I think there's lots of of good counter arguments that go against uh, continuationists when we step back and we look at the Bible we look at the grand narrative of of salvation history, we look at the specific and unique and one-of-a-kind events of the book of Acts, of the New Testament, of the apostolic age, um, and we draw the conclusion, I think just most naturally, that that was such a profoundly unique event, as was the days of Elisha and Elijah, as was the days of Moses, uh, and the other miraculous stages of, of history. Mm. Mm, no, yeah, that's that's wonderful, brother. I actually think you you hit it right on the head. When I think about biblical theology, that's exactly what biblical theology adds to the conversation. Is that the the starting with Pentecost, right? And Pentecost is not some sort of disjointed phenomenon in Scripture, but that Pentecost is actually connected to and is inextricably connected to the to the work of Jesus, both in his living, dying, rising again, exaltation, and outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And Pentecost belongs to that once-for-all work of Christ that, that says that no more could you repeat the first stages of Jesus' ministry, his living and dying. That can't be repeated over again that you can repeat the last stages of his life, his exaltation and outpouring of the Spirit on Pentecost. It's all part of the, of the like you stated, the unique redemptive historical phenomenon of the apostolic age that now constitutes what Paul calls the foundation of the church being rooted in the apostles and prophets. And the apostles and prophets does not mean, well, first of all, it doesn't mean Old Testament prophets, and second of all, it does not mean New Testament prophets and anyone who can just claim to have the gift of prophecy, uh, but it, these were identifiable prophets in the early church that worked alongside of the apostles who were identifiable. It wasn't a nebulous search in the congregation for who has the gift of prophecy today. 
that's not the foundation. That that is not what the work of Pentecost is about. What wh- where the confusion as well comes in is it also comes in in this idea that Pentecost, and maybe I'll say more about this a little bit, but that that how do we apply Pentecost today? Is Pentecost just kind of a a historical kind of artifact? We looked back at it. It was a nice. It was a nice. You know, moment in time, all we do now is sort of appreciate it, but it doesn't have any relevant place in our lives. And I would say to that simply that no, that in fact, every believer participates in a sense of their own Pentecost day upon regeneration. That as the Spirit regenerates, we are experiencing the very same giving of the Spirit that Christ initially gave to the church at the beginning at the individual level. But what they want to do is they want to take the phenomenon that surrounds the day of Pentecost and say that that is what belongs to you on an everyday basis. <laughs> so, you know, so we want to take, you know, we want to take Peter growing limbs out and we want to take, you know, tongues of fire and mighty rushing winds and we want to you know, I actually had a Pentecostal pastor one time tell me that he began to see glowing in one of the rooms where they were having a a, a prayer, you know, like a prayer uh, meeting, and the Spirit was really falling, and he could see light glowing from underneath the door. This this is the kind of stuff you get into when people are 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 trying so hard to have their own Pentecostal event instead of the fact that Pentecost serves at a corporate level what happens to each individual person at salvation. And that is how Pentecost is relevant to us all. You know what Pentecost is? Pentecost is no different than what you see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42 to 49, particularly as it pertains to verse 45. There, Jesus Christ is the life-giving spirit. And what, and, and what we see at Pentecost is exactly that, is exactly that. The risen Christ, who becomes so unified with the Spirit that he gives life to his church, well, that same life-giving Spirit, Christ, is operating in each and every one that he saves, that he regenerates, and that he puts into fellowship with his, his church, his body. And so I think the hermeneutics of Pentecost is detrimental for which way you go on this argument. So just, I mean, those those are just a few things that come to mind, you guys. What about, Kevin, if you want to add anything yeah, to that, brother, um, go for it. I would say, too, it's like you said, they're looking for the uh, the miraculous in that sense. But but what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? You know, if we look at Ephesians 5.18, it says this, and do not be drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Then obviously it goes on to talk about wives and husbands, children and parents, bond servants and masters. But listen to the language in Colossians 3, and this was huge for me too, is looking at this in verse 16. Now, be filled with the Spirit, but listen to what it says. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
What's the result of that? Teaching and admonish one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. And then it goes on, rules for Christian household, you masters, bond servants. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And mm. I think you're absolutely right. And people are like, oh, the Spirit, and they're looking for this this outward. But you know what? It's it's You're right. It's when we are regenerated, we're filled with the Spirit when we let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly. And so when I look at Ephesians 5, and I look at Colossians 3, I'm like, that's what it means to be filled with the Spirit, not the speaking of tongues, different things like that. that, and that even is, in a, no, that's so good. And Mike, Mike, if I can, I want to come back to you and talk a little bit about the theology, but let me just piggyback on something that Kevin did there, is that this is one of the weaknesses that I began to detect from the, the continuationist position, is when you really get into the inner textuality they began to they begin to isolate phrases like "be filled with the Spirit" Ephesians five eighteen right, and they don't harmonize those phrases with the rest Colossians. Paul says later in the negative, "Do not grieve the Spirit." Well, back in Ephesians chapter four, "Do not grieve the Spirit." In First uh, Thessalonians five, he tells you, "Don't quench the Spirit." And when you walk away from continuationist theology, you almost walk away with the sense that each of these texts are somehow isolated from the other sayings of the Spirit, when in fact they are synonymous most of the time, and they are, they're, they're defining, and, and in a sense, they're codependent upon each other for that interpretation. But I, I just think that's one of the concerns that I have is a failure to do the intertextual work. But uh, Mike, you were going to say something, but in whatever you're about to say, if you could just for us also bring in some of the theological difficulties for continuationism. Yeah, I think, I mean, there's, there's so many places we, we could go. We've talked about Pentecost. We've talked about it being repeated uh, if we go to First Corinthians chapter thirteen, when it talks about tongues and prophecy, you know those things. Tongues will cease, right? the The idea there is it talks about in the middle voice of tongues will cease for themselves. And I, I know this is a a very debated text, you know, in the idea of what is the perfect when the perfect comes. Uh, and everybody's, well, what's the perfect, you know, there? And there's, there's lots of different, uh, ideas there. But this is a text that I think in the context of tongues and in, in my mind, tongues, I would probably put it as secondary to prophecy. I love what Kevin said at the, at the beginning of, of talking about prophecy being key, prophecy being, uh, revelation, prophecy being God speaking, thus saith the Lord. And tongues is a, a a different thing, but this is one of the things I was thinking about in the context of of tongues in First Corinthians chapter thirteen, verses nine and ten. Uh, does one of you have your Bibles open that could read it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm there, and I actually have the NAS, NASB uh, uh, Bible version here, so I can uh, I'll read that. You said verses eight through ten, or nine and ten. Uh, we'll go 8 through 10. All right. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. 
for we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Yeah, the partial will be done away when, when tongues will cease, the paradidomai, right? Tongues will cease in the middle voice for themselves. And, and Paul's trying to communicate here that tongues are going to basically collapse into themselves, right? Tongues will cease for themselves. And, and so I, I point this text out here in, in just kind of passing because uh, it's important, it's significant, but there's also this idea that there is textual proof and a textual understanding that Paul had this idea that these things are not permanent for the, for the church age, for our age uh, moving forward, that these things are going to be phasing, phasing out. As well as, I think, Ephesians 2.20. I think this is the, the foundational catalyst uh, of the, the whole idea, built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Right, that idea of the foundation of that New Testament church being finalized, right, upon that, that foundation, that foundation is not being rebuilt, not being anything. It's the foundation, it's, it's finished. I often go to Hebrews chapter one and, and verses one and two, you know, in, in times past. Yeah, God spoke in many different ways through the, to our, to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, has spoken to us by his, his son, right? And so when somebody comes and says, well, I have a prophetic word. Well, hold on. I have Christ. And, and that's what I need, right? So you come at me with tongues. You come at me with, with prophetic words. And my hesitation in always seeing these things was, wait, hold on. I often saw people more excited about these experiential things than they were about a, a pastor opening up Ephesians and telling me about justification by faith, right? And, and there, there, there's something within the heart of man that's desiring these experiences that we're putting those of higher priority when I, I, I don't think that's what the Bible, and especially I don't think that's what Paul is doing in, in Corinthians in those, those chapters, as he, I think he's actually trying to relegate the nonsense that's taking place um, uh, and so forth. So what I kept seeing as I was in the continuationist world for, for years and years and years of, of people who were more excited about the experiences than they were about the theology than they were about Christ um, and, and focusing on who Christ is and the revelation of Christ. And there was these, these nonsense experiences that were, were secondary and fit in this realm of like, I don't know what to do with it. When you're coming at me with these, these quote prophetic words, well, what place do I put that in? Right? What, what level of authority does that have upon me? What level of authority does that bear upon my life, upon the church's life, right? Whether locally or, or capital C. And, um, 
you know, there was this, uh, this, I can't call it, I can't, it was a study. We'll call it a, it was a meeting. Uh, you know, it was a Bethel offshoot, uh, here in Yorba Linda that, that, uh, a few of, uh, some people from our church were attending and they live streamed, uh, this meeting. And I, I, I jumped onto the live stream because I, as a pastor, I wanted to see what was going on. And it was at a house and this lady was leading this, this meeting. Um, and it was supposedly a Bible study. Nobody had a Bible out. And it was a prophetic prayer, like prophecy teaching meeting. And they were teaching people how to, how to prophesy. And at one point, I almost broke my computer because I wanted to throw it. At one point, she partnered people up. And she said, "Okay, well, Emilio, if you, if you threw if you threw your computer, you wouldn't be walking in the spirit." <laughs> For sure, she said, "Emilio, you're going to prophesy over Kevin his his favorite shoes, kind of shoes." And that's what she said. And you're going to have this belief that the Holy Spirit is going to reveal to you Kevin's favorite shoe brand. And I'm sitting there going, "I don't think God, the Holy Spirit." the sovereign third member of the Trinity is about parlor tricks, right? And this goes back to your point, Emilio, is, is they, they treat the Holy Spirit and they're parsing this out. They almost treat it as, yeah, a magic genie, a parlor trick, uh, and not the sovereign third person, third member of the Trinity, of the, of the Godhead. And they, they relegate this member to a genie in the bottle, an experiential emotionalism, a burning in their bosom um, with no context, no identity, uh, no definition. Yeah. Like, no, I, I, oh, oh God. Really. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you, Kevin, because just, I want to piggyback on something Mike just talked about there because this is, this is Mike coming from a position of, Hey, I'm a concerned pastor. Yeah. A group I know, a group I have, a group I'm connected with, they're they're getting excited about this Pentecostal kind of meeting, and he goes to see what's going on, and what he finds is on a practical level, there's all sorts of spiritual abuse and chaos going on. So maybe you can, whatever you're going to touch on next, Kevin, you can lead us also as we think about problems with continuationism at the practical theology that's involved there, and what are some of the practical... Obviously, we're going to disagree exegetically, and we'll get to uh, maybe a few scriptures, key, you know, critical script, scriptures we can talk about, but also speak to the practical problems that come along with this position. Absolutely. The first thing that I think of is, is when just uh, you're asking that is, is the sufficiency of scripture. Like, do you believe that scripture is sufficient? And what ends up happening is you go into these uh, continuationist churches, these pastors, and what they end up doing is they're looking for signs or God spoke to me, God told me, right? And, and what it does is for the people in the congregants, they don't believe that scripture is enough, like God's got to give me a new word, right? Um, who should I marry? This way I can get alone and you lock myself in the room. And you know what I need to do? I need to hear a quote unquote word from the Lord. Um, I need to hear a voice, you know, John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice, right? Well, first of all, it's talking about the effectual call of God. We're not talking about hearing a, an actual voice, but 
You don't believe that scripture is sufficient. You do not believe 2 Timothy 3, 16, 17. You do not believe 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Again, that God's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And I kind of want to piggyback off what you had said, Emilio, too, as well, is um, isolating just a few words or a verse of scripture. Um, it is. It, think about what, what, what was the last chapter that the Apostle Paul wrote, 2 Timothy chapter 4. If we go to 2 Timothy 3, obviously all scriptures breathed out by God, right? Proper for teaching, proof, correction, and training righteousness, so the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. But what does he say in chapter 4, verse 2? He doesn't say, look for signs, the gifts. What are the explicit instructions that Paul gives to Timothy? Preach the what? Preach the word. You know, and then again, I think even when it comes to, um, in a practical sense, and we can dive down even deeper into this, but even with sanctification as well, um, you look at somebody and, and they may be like, well, I need some experience. I can base everything on emotion. I felt the Lord or I felt the presence of the Lord. Well, here's the reality of the situation. What does Peter tell us in first Peter two? He says this, he says, like newborn infants long for this pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And what did Jesus say in John 17, 17? Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And how is faith built? Obviously, we even go to Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so I think somebody within um, who's taking that continuationist position is I mean, if I could just say, frankly, it's like, you're not believing those texts that the word of God is sufficient for all everything that we need. Um, I would also say from a leadership standpoint is I often think, um, you know, pastors or leaders can use this to control people. I mean, what are you going to say when uh, somebody comes up to, and I've, heard stories about this too. And I've even known an individual where someone goes to their pastor and goes, Hey, I'm praying about marrying this girl. And the guy comes back and he goes, well, the Lord spoke to me and told me, well, whoa, okay. So now you're supposed to marry this girl. Well, I got problems with her here, here, here. I don't, I, you know, all these different things. No, God spoke to me and told me, I mean, that sounds crazy. But I think we all know, and we've all seen that happen. And the reality of the situation is I think pastors often use that to keep people down. And now they're looking them as, as some um, higher level of spirituality. Like I said, a modern day Gnosticism that is going on right in front of our eyes. And I think yeah. pastors abuse that. And I think pastors say those things. So they're looked at as the ones who are quote unquote, super spiritual. Yeah, and that's, that's what actually what I found a lot is there was these two classes of Christians, one that was in the super spiritual that had been rebaptized by the Holy Spirit, however many times they've been rebaptized, and then those lesser, lesser Christians. And there was this caste system yeah. that I just don't see consistent in the Bible. Now, if I could backtrack, I need to make an apology because when I was looking at my notes, my eyes jumped to a, a different section. And when I was talking about first Corinthians uh, chapter 13 and tongues will cease, my eyes accidentally went to the wrong part of my, my notes and I misquoted uh, the Greek text because the paradidomai is actually the problem text in uh, Agabus, because the what continuationists will throw back at us when they say, "Well, well, if you look at the New Testament, uh, 
Uh, there's an example of Agabus who, uh, who throws out a potential error. And in Acts chapter 28, uh, verse 17, um, he's talking about Paul there. When you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound uh, and handed over to, uh, by the Jews to the Romans. And they, you know, they, they talk about this is an example in, in Acts 21 and then following in Acts 28 of, of an error in, in Scripture. Uh, that refers to a prophetic error. So I apologize, but that's what it was referring to. And my position of that is I don't think Agabus's prophecy was incorrect. I think their understanding of his prophecy was incorrect. And I think that's what uh, Luke is trying to, to do there. And he's not building a theology of, of prophetic words. That's not his his goal, his purpose, his, uh, his aim there, but he's summarizing, uh, cliff noting for us what exactly is, is going on. Yeah. And so that's a common problem text that gets thrown out. Yeah. I think the problem that we have though, too, is, is just the fact that, uh, individuals will, and will say these things. God told me, God spoke to me. And what they'll say is, you know what is, as Mike, you alluded to earlier on, is that New Testament prophecies changed. So when we look at what happens in the Old Testament, you know, the Old Testament prophets had to speak for the Lord, right? God's perfect. God can't lie. We go to Numbers 23, 19, Titus 1, 2, Hebrews 6, 18, right? God cannot lie. And we obviously know the consequences for a false prophet in Deuteronomy chapter 18. But what ends up happening is now it's, hey, the New Testament, you're able to have false prophecy. So God's still holy. God has can give me a word. I just misinterpreted it, you know? And, and that's often the excuse. So for example, God told me this, it doesn't come to pass. Well, it's, it's you know, I must have misinterpreted that. But as you alluded to earlier, we don't see that anywhere in scripture. We don't say, hey, New Testament prophets, they're going to be fallible. I mean, we see the consistency throughout as, as Amelia, you were talking about just the biblical theology, looking at the, the totality in the whole of scripture. There's no verse that goes, Hey, you may misinterpret prophecy here. And then obviously, um, you know, the, this and to give the excuse for fallible prophecy. Yeah. We just don't see yeah. that. Yeah. No. And also, Mike, I, I uh, appreciate the clarification. The Greek word pasantai is the Greek word used there in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. And, but you're right, it's, in, it's a future, act, it's a future uh, middle uh, verb, and it means exactly what you said. Um, you know, you can check the grammars. Uh, Daniel Wallace has an extended section in his grammar where he explains that that is in the middle voice that indicates some sort of action upon itself. And so the, 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 seemingly the conclusion there in Corinthians is that it does fizzle out in some way, and there I think there are other passages of scripture that that testify to that so let's let's think about and i I am with you guys as far as the practical it's funny, Kevin, when you talk about the the marriage issue, like people getting prophecies or words of knowledge or hearing directing from God, I mean about who you should marry or not marry I mean how many pastors I mean, this is prevalent in the Pentecostal world yep. where pastors will tell their congregants, God spoke to me that you're not allowed to get married to that person. And, and you know, there. I mean, we can spend all day just talking about the abuses that result from people claiming to have some sort of direct revelation from God that, in, that 
that what it does is it introduces the believer, the Christian, into a world of hopeless subjectivism because it's hopeless because there's no way to disprove a person who claims to have received direct revelation from God. There's just no way to do it. Even if you have what amounts to a modern-day Pentecostal or charismatic service where a person claims to be speaking in a supernatural tongue and somebody claims to have received a supernatural interpretation of that tongue, if you keep your eye on the ball, it is all subjective. There is nothing objective about that whatsoever. But it seems to me from 1 Corinthians 14 that there was objectivity and that was the that was the reason why prophets need to be present in the midst of such a charismatic phenomenon so that there could be actual judgment rendered there is no remember in 1 Corinthians 14 there is no new testament to compare it to <laughs> and so you must have supernaturally gifted prophets who are capable of discerning whether or not divine revelation was actually being given to a congregation. And Emilio, could you speak to that just real quick too? Could you give our listeners the background of what was happening in the Church of Corinth? And just to to give some context of uh, how the Church of Corinth was. I mean, just they were a mess. Yeah, it, it yeah, no, it was a mess. I mean, the, I mean, the Church of Corinth is full of divisions and fighting and sin and chaos and, and factionalism and people claiming to be of this teacher and that teacher. And, and I mean, sadly, right, the Church of Corinth is a really carnal church. And that's why Paul, even in his second letter, he has to threaten them in a sense. Do you want me to come to you with a whip? Or do you want me to come to you with the gentleness of Jesus Christ? Because the, the, the church just had this um, just had this propensity to go for the things that were flashy and carnal and the things that were showy, and that's why in Corinthians he talks about not preferring the more prominent members of the body, right, and not neglecting the members that are seemingly not prominent. Right, because they, 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 the Corinthians seem to have this penchant for wanting to always go after the things that are most impressive at the sensual level, at the at the at the level of you know a sight and what you can impress people with carnally, and so yeah, man, it, there was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of factionalism, uh, there was a lot of carnality in the services of the church, even as it pertained to the Lord's Supper. They're taking the Lord's Supper in vain because they're going there for ulterior motives, not to worship and commemorate uh, and receive the grace of Christ, but to get food and to get drunk and drink wine and, and these kinds of things where the, the, the apostle has to constantly correct the church of Corinth for its disorderly conduct and even calling them repeatedly in, in 1 Corinthians 12 to 14 to do everything in order. God is not a God of confusion. And so the reasons for that, of course, is because the Corinthians were, in fact, operating on a very, uh, on a very sort of uh, chaotic uh, way where they were trying to show each other up by their, apparently, by their gifted status and whatnot. So yeah, there's, there's a lot going on in Corinth. <laughs> there's a lot going on. And I think that's profoundly important as it's not really the church we want to model. Mm. 
um, you know, we want to model what what Paul is saying to them. But Paul's coming to them with with corrective with the whip, you know. Yeah. Um, and I think often that's what conservative Bible believing individuals are trying to do just the same against hyper Pentecostalism and the, the, the shenanigans that are often taking place in so-called churches. Yeah, for sure. Well, we read some scripture and if, if, uh, if we could, maybe we could read a scripture that I think is very, very relevant uh, for this conversation out of Hebrews and of course, it's Hebrews uh, chapter two, uh, specifically verse uh, three and four. Uh, but maybe, uh, uh, let's see, maybe I can just read for us. Uh, obviously, we know the context here. This is a warning against neglecting the gospel that came in the new covenant because uh, there's a warning here that. You know that uh, that that God, you know, disciplined the people in the old covenant for not listening to the message that they received. But in verse thir- verse three, uh, the author of Hebrews says, "How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation?" Now, with respect to the salvation, uh, the author says that it was spoken, and so he must be referring to the gospel. And he says here, after it was at first spoken through the Lord. Now, what seems to happen next is, in a sense, a succession of, of, of the tradition that was handed down and to whom. So we have a message coming through the Lord, that's Jesus, and then it says, it was confirmed to us, that is the author of the letter and the audience, and then it says, by those who heard, and so those who heard must be the apostles who heard the Lord. Then he says, God also testifying with them. And so now he speaks of God doing a work among a prior generation, the apostles. And he says that he testified to them or with them by both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. So it seems to be, especially if you take the dating of the book of Hebrews, uh, probably around 68, 69, definitely before the destruction of Jerusalem, but right not, not, not too far off from that event. And it seems that the author of Hebrews already at the close of the 60s is talking about the phenomenon of spiritual gifts as something that happened decades ago among a previous generation. Now, Wayne Grudem attempts to interact with this passage, but I don't think he succeeds. I think the argument still stands that here we have an author, obviously we can, <laughs> debating the, the authorship of Hebrews is a different episode, <laughs> so let's not even go there, but obviously here you have the author of Hebrews saying that, that you know, there was a generation past that was known to have received confirmation from the Lord by the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so I see that what you see at Pentecost, what you see early in the book of Acts, what you see uh, even in Corinth in the early 50s, uh, and if you know Paul is writing this in the early 50s, then the actual events were transpiring prior even to that. So now you have in the early, uh, late 40s, early 50s, this charismatic phenomenon going on, which a later church, much later, is now looking back to in historical reflection. 
Absolutely. And I think you could even add uh, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, right? The signs of a true apostle. What were they? With mighty signs and wonders, right? It says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. And even in Romans, right? Romans 15, in verses 18 and 19, Paul says, for I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the spirit of God. And so it goes on there, but I think that that just... Obviously, what you just talked about, Hebrews chapter two, like those gifts were for the apostolic age. And we know from Ephesians 2.20, that was to lay the foundation of the church. Yeah, you know, something we didn't even talk about, uh, and I don't know if any of y'all care to comment on this, but the testimony of church history, it seems conclusive to me from church history. I've studied many church history books. And I've spent a lot of time on ch- church history, especially, you know, in, uh, in the past. I haven't done a whole lot of church history here recently, but it seems conclusive from church history that if what you see at Corinth is normative, you, you really don't see that in the history of the church. You have a document like the Didache, right? A very early second century document that is written as a manual of ministry for the early church. And the Didache does not mention any charismatic activity going on in the second century. You have, you have a very slender reference to things like prophesying and, and, and sort of supernatural phenomenon, but it's very scant. It's here and there. But what we have today, guys, in the 21st century... 20th, 21st century so far, is we have an entire host of evangelicalism attempting to tell us that this is all normative for today. It's, it's rather astounding. Yeah, you think about it. I mean, here's a quote, actually, um, you know, John Christostom, right? He says, this whole place, speaking about 1 Corinthians 12, the gifts is very obscure, but the obscurity is produced by our ignorance of the facts referred to and by their cessation being such as then used to occur, but now no longer take place. You know, I mean, you think of John Chrysostom. Yeah. Keep on going, Mike. Yeah. Augustine, a contemporary says the same thing, talking about tongues and saying it will pass away or has passed away, right? That's the testimony of the early church. Um, early church, you know, writers that are commenting on obviously First uh, uh, Corinthians twelve there, and then there's silence in church history up until relatively modern times, you know, about the gifts of the Spirit, and then when it does pop up, it pops up with very questionable groups. Yeah. And Mike, I think, you you know, you talked about earlier, and you're absolutely correct when you say, I mean, when you look at the limited period of times, I mean, I think one of the mistakes is people think that miracles are littered throughout the Bible, right? I mean, but you look, you got, uh, you know, you look at Moses, Joshua, Elijah, Elisha, Jesus and the apostles, um, you know, they're not on every page, you know? And I think that's, that's, again, as we talk about biblical theology, not eisegeting a verse or a text of scripture and then building a theology out of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you think about things that are done in Bethel, uh, the story of the little girl that passed away and there they are holding a service yelling 
that she's going to come out of that grave, right? Because they have the faith and they're having concerts about it. And this is, I mean, everyone can claim, well, that's an argument from experience or whatever, but we can't ignore (laughs) the obvious that experientially speaking, even among what are supposedly clear-thinking continuationists, I mean, John Piper has relayed on countless occasions the false prophecies he received at his own church, Uh, things that were said about his wife that never came to pass. And, you know, uh, Mike, you mentioned it at the very outset here, but in terms of this attempt to distinguish modern-day prophecy and prophets from original biblical prophecy and prophets— that's a that's a very subjective distinction because in the mind of the authors of scripture there is no distinction right there you can't not you can't just uh you know you can't just split those categories apart and create a brand new category that doesn't exist in the old testament everybody knows the punishment for false prophecy is death Deuteronomy 18 now we understand that today we don't put people to death as the people of God <laughs> Right, but we do engage in church discipline, for example. And what would be the res- what would be the consequence in a church for doing something that, in the old covenant, violated uh, the, the the law of God, such that the death penalty would be incurred? Well, it should be some form of church discipline, at least. But in our churches today, we put up with false prophecy and quote unquote words of knowledge. We put up with it. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, you put up with it marvelously, and mocking the Corinthians that they're putting up with something false. And, and, and sadly, isn't it ironic, guys, and I think you guys would all agree with this, that those who actually are claiming to emphasize the ministry of the Spirit actually end up making a mockery of it because they undermine the gravity of the Spirit in His work of bringing divine revelation to God's people. It's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. John 16, what does Jesus call him? He calls him the spirit of truth. Well, what is truth? Your word is truth. And Emil, I just want to, I kind of want to piggyback back off what you said too, is just the idea of not having enough faith. I can remember it was probably about 20 years ago. I was living in Costa Mesa with uh, two other guys. Great place, you know, right by the beach there. But I actually had a roommate who locked himself in his room and for hours would pray that he could hear the voice of the Lord. And the reason why is because the church he was going to, the pastor just flippantly said, God spoke to me. God told me. And he goes, I don't get it. He's all, how come he speaks to him and he can tell him like what to preach or what to do? And again, it was just so flippant out of his mouth. He goes, I've never heard the voice of the Lord. So you talk about this, this wrecks people too. It really does. And yeah. so this, this isn't and something then, that, that we yeah. take lightly, you know? No. Yeah. And then, and then Kevin, what that does is it, it snowballs, right? It's like, it's like, what Cornelius Van Til used to say, one error in one point of your theology will necessarily lead to error in other points of your theology. And so that pastor is then left to create other doctrines, like the fact that he is the anointed one, and that God, that God has singled him out, and, and, and that the favor of God, the anointing of God is, 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 in, is on him in a special way, that he's not with everybody else. And it comes back to this caste system that Mike was talking about. You develop this you know, Richard Gaffin, in the book that he just published on the book of Acts, he says, 
There are no have and have-nots in the kingdom of God. There are not those people that are uniquely gifted and those who are missing out, you know, because they're not the ones gifted by God. It, it doesn't work that way. Yeah. And that's exactly the consequence of modern-day charismatic theology. Uh, you can try to avoid it. You can try to be clear-thinking. You can try to be exegetical about it. You could be reformed. You can try to incorporate it into your biblical theology or do whatever you want. But I promise you that at the practical level of orthopraxy, it's going to show up in these spiritual perversions, these spiritual abuses. And from a pastoral level, it just wreaks havoc in your yeah. church. Touch yeah. not the oh, Lord's Edward. anointed, right? Yeah. Your only, your only other choice is just to turn a blind eye to it. Yep. Yeah. Jonathan Edwards says this in referring to this context. He says, this heir will defend and support all heirs as long as a person has a notion that he is guided by immediate direction from heaven, it makes him incorrigible and impregnable in all misconduct. For what signifies it for poor blind worms and dust to go to argue with a man and endeavor to convince him and correct him that is guided by the immediate counsel and command of the great Jehovah? Right. And pastorally speaking, these are the hardest people to minister to that are saying, thus saith the Lord. Right. I regard that term in in a very high way. And when people throw that around, that's dangerous. That's profoundly dangerous. Um, and is the result of all sorts of mischief. Yeah. Yeah. Think about. Yeah, and I know we're I know we're close on our time here as we're getting close to the end here. But I thought we were just going getting going, man. You know, <laughs> I actually I actually think this is the longest episode we've ever done. So <laughs> we're over an hour now, which is great. But but I want to end it on a very on a very um, meaningful note. And I think just the fact, Mike, that you bring in Jonathan Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, one of my my heroes, one of my favorite theologians, right? Again, the charismatic position forces you to adhere to positions and ideas and concepts and maintain uh, points of view that are so illogical, radically illogical, that some of the godliest men that we know, Jonathan Edwards, who was a committed cessationist, that he somehow lacked the spirit, that he didn't have the insight of the Holy Spirit, that he didn't have the anointing, he didn't have the baptism of the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit. It's absolutely, it's, it's completely absurd. And, but this is what happens to you when you go down this path of a false pneumatology. You're going to end up having to stick to that and say that some of the godliest people in the world, in, in terms of the legacy of, of saints that we have in church history, that show no evidence of charismatic activity in their lives, that they are devoid of the Spirit, or they're just not as gifted as even you were. And talk about shepherding difficult people. I love what John MacArthur said, right? He said, you know, um, uh, hard preaching produces soft people, but soft preaching produces hard people. And sadly, in a lot of charismatic churches where doctrinal specificity is low, there's a strange pride that comes over people they're unteachable. They're unwilling to yield to scripture. I mean, each of you guys are pastors. 
let's let's just end this by maybe both of you guys can speak to that. Kevin, you can go first. Yeah, absolutely. Um no, you're right. I mean, we need to hear the truth of God's word from from the pulpit. We do. Um we need to hear exactly, we need to hear the whole counsel of God. And that's why, you know, when we look at, you know, obviously when we talked about even Corinthians, what's going on in the context of that church? Let's, let's find out. Let's just not isogete a passage there. But I think, Mike, you're right. One of the hardest things to do is to talk to somebody who is a continuationist and to say, God's word is sufficient. It says it's sufficient. Um, you know, Psalm 19, it revives the soul. It rejoices the heart. It makes wise the simple and enlightens the eyes. This is, it's, it's perfect. And um, oftentimes though, you know, you get resorted to a 1 Corinthians 12 or 1 Corinthians 14 passage instead of looking at, again, the, the whole of scripture, the whole counsel of God and, uh, in biblical theology, um, you know, I had a conversation with a guy probably, uh, man, it was about six months ago and it was in my office and, um, he still believed that prophecy was for today. And I took him to these passages and he was like, well, you don't know what I've experienced. And so I just took him to second Peter chapter one. And I was like, I go, you haven't had an experience like Peter. Peter was on the Mount Transfiguration, right? He saw, he saw Christ in his glory. He heard the voice of God. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But what does he do? He says, we have a word that is more sure. He points us back. The apostolic age is coming to a close, yet he points us back to the very word of God. And I think for me, one thing that I always said, and this was a huge thing for me, was just uh, um, was believing in the sufficiency of Scripture. You know, the canon's closed. And again, do I believe that scripture is sufficient? And so when I talk to anybody who's a continuationist, I ask them that question. Um, do you believe the canon is, is closed? Do you believe that God is still continuing to give revelation? And obviously they'll be like, well, in a different way, you know, and uh, come up with these obviously different excuses. But I'll, then I'll talk to them and just say, is, is scripture sufficient? Is it sufficient? Because here's what God's word clearly says. And again, instead of looking for the miraculous or let's, let's look at biblical theology. Let's, let's look at the totality of scripture. Let's look at just again, those different periods of time where again, those, those gifts were given. And again, let's look at church history as well. But most importantly, let's look at what the word of almighty God says. Yeah, I mean, I think that is the sufficiency of Scripture is is the argument. Either it's sufficient or it's not. Either revelation is continuing or 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 it's not. Right there, there's no there's no middle ground here, and you know that that is something that we should not pass by so so quickly. That the Bible is absolutely sufficient for for all all that we need right it's profitable for correction or proof you know tra- everything that the man of god needs uh it's it's there inscripturated for us infallible inerrant word of god that theology and you know i think there's often a a miss um characterization of us you know emilio's trinity is god the father god the son and god the holy bible 
right? Like that's often what, what is looked, you know, when they, when they look at us, like, well, you just don't believe in the Holy Spirit. You know, your Holy Spirit's been replaced by this, this book, you know, here that's leather bound and, and that's not at all. You know, there is a rich theology of the Holy Spirit that we, we must study and learn and, and, and regard as precious, right? He is not a genie in the bottle that's relegated to parlor tricks, mm-hmm. right? That's a terrifying place uh, to place God. Uh, and, and that should strike, strike fear in our, our hearts. I think the, the necessity, the absolute necessity of studying the whole revelation of God from Genesis to Revelation, right, in its historical, grammatical context of what God is doing in unfolding his revelation and bringing about his desired end and regarding it uh, as it as it is it flows throughout the pages of scripture. And one just a side note, one of the things you know we didn't mention is as as you study continuationism uh, and the that position. Right, they go to Acts a couple places in Acts, and then they got First Corinthians, and then it's kind of that's it, right? Well, Paul wrote a lot of books, you know, to what twelve books after First Corinthians, right? There's there's other epistles and an argument from silence, but still an argument is that they are lacking in spiritual gifts and in instruction in those. Uh, those type of things. And I think that lends towards the idea that, well, because they were fading out, uh, these, these things had a purpose. These gifts had a purpose in the establishment of, of the new covenant of what God was doing and the radicalness of a crucified Messiah, right? Who, who, who died and, and who rose again. And, and this, this complete, um, shift in the Jewish context from the idea of the Old Testament temple and priesthood to now everything finding its full fulfillment, the covenantal promises finding their full fulfillment in Christ, uh, who now in the last days he's spoken to us in Christ and his testimony rings true and that is sufficient to provide all that I need. One more right? thing, to Mike. Provide I love, all that I need. love what you said. And I mean, John 16, 14, what did Jesus say? He will glorify me. You know what the reality is, is the Holy Spirit puts our gaze on the beauty and the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, you know, and it's not the, this, this, um, looking for these signs and wonders, but I'll tell you what, yes, as we open the word and we see, and the Holy Spirit illuminates the word to us that, uh, he would open our eyes and behold wondrous things from our law that again, our, our gaze and our focus is on the majesty of Christ. Yeah, and we've talked a lot about uh, the sufficiency of Scripture, uh, but n- let's not forget the sufficiency of Christ, because Scripture says we are complete in Him, and it's in union with Christ that we have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. The believer that is united to Christ does not lack anything. Uh, Colossians 3 says, He is our life. And so we don't lack anything in Christ. We don't lack an experience. We don't lack a spirituality. We don't lack a status. And when you understand that, it leads you to be more spiritual. When you understand that Christ is all that you need, 
And certainly that is the work of the Spirit to make us more and more Christ-centered. So guys, man, I think this was a really great conversation. I think it was really encouraging. And I think uh, for our listeners, I think that they will be encouraged and challenged. And obviously, it's a it's a conversation that we had to have. Mike Tiemann, brother, welcome to the show. And uh, welcome to being a participant and a contributor. I think we're going to have to retain you. I think we're going to have to enlist you. <laughs> and I don't think we're going to let you go that easy. And w- what that means is that we're going to have to do this again, brother. Well, thank you so much for having me. This was a blessing, even though I made a little mistake there early on. But, you know, yeah. hey, grace abounds, right? Yeah, people don't realize we're, we go way back, all three yeah. of us. <laughs> it's, so, it's so great. But anyway, God bless you guys. Uh, thanks for listening to another episode of Christ and Kingdom. Make sure and, and, and share and subscribe to the show and never miss an episode. God bless you guys. 